Good morning, Grace Church. Great to see everybody here today. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I'll tell you what, why don't we stand to our feet and uh, why don't we open the service? Let's give the Lord some appreciation. Can we clap our hands and praise and worship for the Lord? Thank the Lord. It's great to see you. Look at your neighbor, give him a high five. Tell him I'm glad to see you. Thank the Lord. God bless you, and you may be seated. On that uh, high five thing, I mean, some of y'all need to go easy. I mean, send somebody to the emergency room here today. Um, I want to make a brief presentation this morning so we can launch right into our service this morning. Uh, as I'm going to assume all of you, if not all of you, most of you know that uh, our Louisiana District Superintendent, Brother Darrell Weber, uh, introduced at the first part of this year at our Section 2 conference, then at District Conference in March, and then this past week at Camp Meeting, uh, Mission Louisiana. And that is the building a new tabernacle, building a new boys' dorm, uh, converting the existing tabernacle to a new dining hall, concession stand, uh, even a dormitory up where the balconies are, uh, some breakout rooms for, for meetings and sessions during district conference, camp meeting, youth camps, etc. cetera. Uh, a massive undertaking of, uh, I believe the total number is around $11 million. And uh, so he's asked every church, every pastor, every church to pledge money toward that. I need our ushers. Uh, they're here. Okay, young people, okay. Um, I'm going to ask them, y'all go ahead and start moving around. If y'all have these little cards, uh, everybody gets one. Everybody's going to get one of these. Um, say if you're 12 and up, 15 and up, whatever it is. Uh, but it's going to be a, a massive undertaking, one that I believe and all of you believe is long overdue. I'm very excited about it, very happy about it. The sanctuary will go from about a 6,000-seat uh, tabernacle to a 10,000-seat tabernacle. The boys' dorm will sleep for 300. Um, it's going to be amazing when it's all done. Uh, Sister Murph and I talked about it, and, and she and I stepped out on faith. We pledged for Grace Church $1,000 a month in hopes that you will come through and uh, help the church make that pledge. So you've been given a little piece of paper um, we'll need the same young people, if you will. We'll do this after church. If you fill these out, if you just fold it in half, and um, we'll have a basket. Um, I can't see. Kelton, if we can have a basket on the concierge desk, if you just, just fold it in half and drop it in it after church on your way out. Um, Brother Weber mentioned at our Section 2 conference, if every person that attends a United Pentecostal Church in the state of Louisiana would give, it's a little over $8 a month. It would cover the whole entire expense of this. And uh, I think that's pretty amazing if everybody did that. Um, so our Sister Murph and I took that, we just rounded up to $10. If everybody could pledge at least $10 a month, uh, we hope that you can do more, would do more. But I'll have you notice at the very top of this, it has Mission Louisiana, this is a 36-month pledge, not just a year, 
but for 36 months, so it's for three years that our church has pledged to give $1,000 a month to go towards all these renovations at the campground. So if you can, if you'd fill this out, um, just we'll have a basket at the concierge desk in the front. Just drop it in there when you leave. It would be deeply, deeply appreciated. Does everybody understand? Hope everybody does. The response was overwhelming that you understand. Thank you for that. Um, uh, so just take care of that. You platform people uh, will have these on the concierge desk. You can grab one on your way out as well. God bless you as Brother Dave comes. Well, thank you, Pastor. Boy, it's exciting times, isn't it? I told the adult Sunday school class this morning, I'm excited about what God's doing in the district. And that carry, it's not that it carries over into Grace Church, but it's God's doing great things here too. It's just, it's all over to see what God's doing here in our state. And uh, I'm just glad to be in the kingdom of God as we move forward, as we see what God wants to do through his church. Amen? Just a couple of things I want to tell you about before we start our worship set today. Uh, this Friday night, everybody say this Friday night. The North Texas District Choir will be here on part, as part of their Magnify Summer Tour. That starts at 7.30. Say, I'll be here. Awesome. Good. Well, you can't lie in church, so I'm looking forward to seeing everybody here. Uh, you can't lie anytime, but especially in church. Amen. Looking forward to seeing you here 7.30. We're going to have an awesome time worshiping God, and it's a great time to bring somebody with you. Uh, and hear some great worship music and feel the presence of the Lord. Amen. And then don't forget Mother's Memorial. If you're planning to give to that offering, that deadline is July the 19th. So you want to make a note of that. And then finally, uh, breaking news. So excited to announce this. Uh, mark your calendars. Everybody listen close. Here we go. Drum roll, the whole thing. Uh, Saturday, August the 12th. Everybody tell your neighbor, August the 12th. That is going to be the 30th pastoral anniversary banquet. We're going to honor the Murphys for 30 years of service. Amen. Let's give them a hand. That's right. Pastor, I remember. Thank you. There we go. I remember when y'all came 30 years ago unloading the moving van at your house. And some of, uh, I know Kelton was there, Steve, some of these guys. It has been 30 years. I can't believe it, Sister Cassie. 30 years, and so we're going to honor them that entire weekend, but especially we want you to come to this banquet in their honor from 6 to 9, Saturday, August the 12th. Watch your email this week for the RSVP link. We do have to have a head count. We've got to give Forest Grove a head count, so we need you to respond. Be looking for that in your email. If you got it, say, I got it. Amen. Stand with me. We're looking forward to that whole weekend. It's going to be awesome. Psalm chapter 5, verse 3, the psalmist said this. So if you're a morning person and if you're not a morning person, he says this. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Hey, it's Sunday morning at Grace Church. We're getting ready to worship God. Would you help me lift by lifting your voice, looking up, lifting your faith. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. You've already won. You've already won. 
Two. 
all of you here this morning as you return to your seats. It's a great week at camp meeting this past week. Uh, wonderful youth camp, three weeks of youth camps, a week of, youth, of, of camp meeting. And uh, now in just a couple of weeks, I guess, uh, can anybody say N-A-Y-C? I thought it'd be coming mostly from this area right here. Uh, some of our girls have heard there's going to be a lot of single young men there. And, uh, that's not the reason. I'm just kidding. But uh, So there's some, one more awesome event to kind of cap off summer for our young people, spiritually speaking. And uh, we're excited about what God is doing. Thank the Lord. Again, great to see all of you here. I want to jump right into the Word of God this morning would like to call your attention to John chapter 4, beginning with verse 46. John chapter 4, verse 46. If you would please make an effort to remember your, uh, your campground pledge this morning would be appreciated. John chapter 4, verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So Jesus is at Cana. The nobleman is in Cana, but his son who was sick is in Capernaum. It's about 18 miles away. And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down make that 18-mile journey and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That doesn't seem relevant, but oh, it is very relevant. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, your son lives. And the man believed. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then inquired he of one of them the hour which he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, your son started getting better yesterday. At the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Your son lives. And himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. I want to speak to you for a little while this morning. There are some people here that I would really like to see the Word of God encourage. I want to talk to you this morning about the long road to an answered prayer request. The long road to an answered prayer request. Thank you for standing. God bless you, and you may be seated. 
you were here a couple of Sundays ago, Brother Aaron Holloway preached a, a, what I believe to be a masterpiece of a message that if you hear this today and would like to hear more about how this can work, I would encourage you to go and listen to Brother Holloway's message. We all remember times, I'm sure, well, maybe all of us don't, some of us do, remember times when you'd do prayer requests to church. And uh, when I was a child, I remember there was always a segment in the service, does anybody have a prayer request? And you could raise your hand and the pastor, whoever's in the pulpit, would call on you. And you could tell everybody what your prayer request was. Well, when we came here 30 years ago, we continued that tradition until one fateful Sunday night when we were in Baker. When we asked if there's any prayer request and somebody raised their hand and they shared their prayer request in all of the gory, nasty detail you could imagine. So then we went to prayer request cards and then... We just sometimes ask, and ask for an unspoken request. Not giving people the opportunity to go into all them details. I'm thinking right now of a man that I love dearly. His name is Greg McCool. He's not a minister, even though he comes from a family of ministers. But he was a singer. Kind of a Christian southern gospel singer. And wrote nearly all the songs, if not all the songs, that he sang, he wrote. One of them that he became very noted for was the unspoken prayer request. That he was the unspoken prayer request that God answered for his mother. Because Greg had gone rogue and turned his back on God, became an alcoholic. I forgot now what his drug and alcohol habit was. It's a miracle that he even survived. Lived years like that and finally converted and God inspired him to write a song and he titled it that I am the answered prayer request. I'm that unspoken prayer request. Every service my mother would raise her hand. I have an unspoken request and it was for him. Before I get into my message today, I want to share with you some thoughts about John and his gospel. We just read out of the gospel of John. And John in his gospel has some stories for us to ponder. He interwove a tapestry of miracles. He was concluding his book, the book of John, when he said, But these are written in John 20 verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you might have life through his name. Life-giving belief. This is what John wants to write about. Abundant, robust, resilient faith. He is saying that life happens when you believe. We find strength. Beyond our strength. Somebody needs to hear this right now. We find strength beyond our strength. We accomplish tasks beyond our capacity. We see solutions 
beyond our wisdom. Belief is not some respectful salute to a divine being. Belief happens. Belief happens when we place our confidence in God. It is a decision to lean entirely upon the strength of a living and loving Savior to the extent that we will have life. We will live life in His name. This is the purpose of the miracles and why John chose to write about them. John recounted signs, each one intended to stir conviction in this promise. He reiterated, he made it clear that when you have a relationship with God, you nor I are ever alone. Never. He reminds us that this was the final promise of Christ to his disciples and everyone that would believe after them. He assured them, he assures us, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These words must have meant everything to John. I'd like for you to picture the aged apostle as he shares these stories. He's an old man now, probably in his mid-60s. Sister Murphy got that. He's an old man. His hair perhaps is silver, skin wrinkled, but his eyes are still full of hope and faith and belief. He pastors a church in Ephesus. He loves to tell and they love to hear about the day some six decades earlier and about a thousand miles away when Jesus invited him to lay down the fishing net and follow him, and John did, along with Peter, Andrew, James. But they're gone now. They've long since fulfilled their mission and finished their lives, and now only John remains. John, likely knowing his days are coming to an end, takes on one final task. Perhaps the last thing he wanted to accomplish, even after the revelation, the book of Revelation as we know it, after all that he'd been through, there's one more thing that I want to do. I want to write about the life of the Jesus that I have followed for all of these years. I believe that he understood that by now, the gospel of Mark is in circulation. Matthew and Luke have compiled their accounts of the life of Christ, and now John wants to do the same. But his gospel is going to be a little bit different. He seeks to tell stories they didn't and add details to the stories they did share. He selects his gospel from a cross-section of signs and things. He takes us first to Cana to experience Jesus' first miracle of turning water to wine, then to Capernaum to watch a father embrace the son he feared would die. I'll talk about that in a moment. Then we feel the fury of an angry storm in Galilee and hear the, the murmur of a hungry crowd on the hillside. And then 
we watch the paralytic stand up and the blind man look up. And before John is done, he will lead us through two cemeteries, near one near the cross, and invite us to eavesdrop on a breakfast chat that changed the life of an apostle. John's chosen miracles run the gamut from a wedding oversight to a violent execution, from empty bellies to empty dreams, from abandoned hopes to buried friends. And we will be careful to see the signs as John designed them to be seen, not as an entry into a history book, but samples from God's playbook. All these events stand together as one voice calling on you and I to lift up our eyes and open our heart to the possibility, indeed, the reality that the greatest force in the universe is the one who means you well and brings you hope. John recorded them not to impress us, but to urge us to believe in the tender presence and the mighty power of Jesus Christ. This montage of miracles proclaims to all of us when you read them, no matter what it is, God's got this. No matter what it is, God's got this. I want to submit to all of you here today that you're stronger than you think because Jesus is nearer than you know. Amen. Jesus touched wounds and spoke words of hope and lives were improved, blessings were bestowed. There was a message in his miracles and it is saying, I am here and I care. So today for a few moments, I want to present to you what John presented to us as Jesus' second miracle. We hear a lot about the first, the turning water into wine. We hear about that frequently. But you don't hear too much about the second one. And the second one has a message in it that is mind-boggling to me. It's the long road that a man was willing to travel to have a prayer answered. Bill Irwin. Bill Irwin was not the first person to ever walk the Appalachian Trail he was not the only individual to begin in Springer Mountain, Georgia and conclude on Mount Cudadon in Maine. Other adventuresome souls had hiked the 2,100 miles, endured the snow, the heat, the rain, slept on the ground, forded through the streams and shivered in the cold. Bill Irwin was not the first to accomplish this feat, but he was the first in this respect. He was blind when he did it. He was 50 years old when in 1990 he set out on the hike. A recovering alcoholic and on some level committed to Christianity. He memorized 2 Corinthians 5, 7 when the Bible said, For we walk by faith, not by sight. He made this his mantra. And this is what he did. He did not use maps. He did not use a GPS. He did not use a compass. It was just Irwin and his German shepherd and the rugged terrain of the mountains. He estimated that he fell some 5,000 times. 
which translates into an average of about 20 times a day for eight months he fell down. He battled hypothermia. He battled cracked ribs, skinned hands and knees more times than he can count. But he made it. He made it. He made the long walk by faith, not by sight. We're doing the same here today. There's people here today that you're on that long walk to an answered prayer request. We're doing the same, probably not on the trails of the Appalachians, obviously not, but in the trials of life, you're walking not on the path between Georgia and Maine. No, you're walking on a road even steeper and even longer. It's the long road to an answered prayer request. Between supplication and celebration, between bent knees and lifted hands, between tears of fear and tears of joy, between help me, Lord, and thank you, Lord. Does anybody here know the road that I'm talking about? How it can grow dark and how it can be filled with fear and cause a lot of doubt. How despair tags along as an uninvited companion. If you can relate, you'll find what I'm presenting to you today inspiring and very challenging. The Bible said again in John 4, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Jesus was in Cana. The young sick boy was in Capernaum. Jesus, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This father was a man of high standing in the court of King Herod. More than likely, he was a Gentile. His modern-day counterpart would be the White House chief of staff or perhaps someone on the presidential cabinet. He held a position of status and oversaw a house full of servants. But none of that mattered, for he had a son who was very sick. This son was a child, not just a lad. He was a child, and no doubt the prominent aristocrat had summoned the finest physicians to help his boy, but no one could. And now his son is teetering on the brink of death. He lived in Capernaum. This nobleman lived in Capernaum, a fishing village. I've been there, as a matter of fact. That served, it served as a base of operations for Jesus. Peter had a home at Capernaum. Jesus was known to speak in its synagogue. It's not hard to imagine a villager suggesting to the distraught father, ask the Nazarene to come help your son. He has healing power. Jesus was already known in Capernaum. However, the dilemma that the man was facing was not a lack of faith, but the trial of distance. He was in Capernaum. Jesus was 18 miles away in Cana. Now to you and I, in Baton Rouge traffic, that could be an hour. But typically it would be about a 20, 25 minute drive. 
But I would like for you to leave here this morning and walk 18 miles one way and try to experience what that man experienced. It would be here from, from here almost to Gonzales or Prairieville, if you will. Just to set out on a walk and to walk 18 miles when somebody probably suggests to go get Jesus. The man had every right to say, do you know how far away he is right now? And be very legitimate in that observation. Jesus was a long ways away. And there's people here today that seems like one of two things. Either Jesus is a long ways from you or that you are a long ways from Jesus. I have hope for you here today. I have something I want to say to you today. When the man realized, the nobleman realized that Jesus was 18 miles away, he set out on that walk. He gave, he left his dying son. It was a greater priority to him to go get Jesus than to sit by his dying son. You get your head around that. I know very few people who have ever left the intensive care unit with a loved one in it dying to go down to the chapel at a hospital and pray. You don't want to leave their bedside. But somehow this man understood if there's going to be any thread of hope for my son, I have to go and find Jesus wherever he is. I appreciate your applause of agreement and approval. But we don't always practice that. We would rather stay closer to the one dying than to get closer to the one who is alive forevermore. We would prefer to say, I'm not beating anybody up. I'd do the same thing. We just want to be there for that last breath, that final goodbye, to hold their hand and to help usher them to the other side when... Behind us, around us, is another presence. He kissed his dying son goodbye. Gave his anxious wife a promise that I'll be back. And then on foot, he began that 18-mile walk northeast around the Sea of Galilee. The trek required food. For them, you just didn't do this in a day. It required planning. It required, because of who he was, a protection detail. Secret service, we would call it. Perhaps a pre-dawn departure. If he could do it in a day, a pre-dawn uh, departure would have him in Cana by sundown before dark that day. If he left at midday, he'd have to spend the night in an inn or taking up lodging in a borrowed room. Either way. He could not enjoy the walk. He could not stop to see the sights. Nor could he stop and visit with anybody along the way. This was an urgent prayer request. By the time he spotted Jesus in Cana, the official was no doubt weary and worried. The New Living Translation says, He went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum 
and heal his son who was about to die. Straightforward was this request, urgent. He didn't mention his position. He didn't tell Jesus who he was, what his title was. He didn't promise to make a financial contribution to the cause of Christ. He didn't imply that he was worthy of divine assistance. He came to Jesus as a desperate father and he begged him to come to Capernaum. I know people who use the word beg. They use the word begged. Someone said not too long ago that somebody begged me to do something. And I immediately got this picture in my head that that person just got down on their knees, on their face, on the floor, and just started crying and pleading and begging, would you please do this or that, whatever it was. That probably didn't happen in this case. But in the Bible case, it did. The man, do you understand who he was? He got on his face and begged. I envisioned this man on his knees, perhaps his face on the ground, imploring Jesus to return with him and to heal his son. He not only had a request, but he had a plan. In his mind, the two would walk side by side from Cana back to Capernaum, 18 miles, until they stood by the dying boy. That's what this man pictured in his head. Y'all follow me here today. We do the same thing. We have a prayer request, and we sit down in our mind and say, God, I want you to do this, 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 and this, and if you'll do it according to my plan, everything is going to work out okay. The response of Jesus is very surprising. This man is on the ground begging him, tears streaming. And Jesus said, will you never believe in me? You will never believe in me until you see miraculous signs and wonders. Well, that's an appropriate answer. That is really comforting. That is really assuring. But Jesus knew what he was about to do. And if the man would believe in what Jesus was about to say, everything's going to be real cool. But dude, if you get frumply with me, Mr. Presidential Nobleman, if you get real frumply with me and argue with me and debate with me and doubt what I'm about to say, your son will be dead this time tomorrow. That's what Jesus was saying that's the Murphy commentary. I don't see this starchy question coming in this story. Only one miracle into John's gospel, and we hear Jesus saying, be careful. He waved a caution flag against a contingent faith. He waved a caution flag against a contingent of faith, a faith that says, I will believe if, or I will believe when. You're laying out for Jesus a criteria. You're laying out for Jesus an agenda. If you do it my way, I'll believe. If you change it, then I, you've lost me. What prompted this response? Perhaps the attitude of the believers. They took note of the arriving official with an entourage in tow. They learned of his dying son and the plan to, to solicit the assistance of Jesus, they followed him, not out of concern for his son, 
but out of a fascination for the miracle. We want to come with you, Mr. Nobleman, so we can see what Jesus is going to do. We want to put him under a microscope. This was Cana, after all. You remember that? They were in the same place where a few days prior, Jesus turned water to wine, or as people said. No doubt the miracle of changing water to wine was out on the streets. Perhaps they were hoping to see another display of power. Come on, Jesus, show us what you can do. Or perhaps Jesus saw contingent faith in the request of the Father. Not only did the man ask for help, but he also told Jesus the way that help should be admonished. Come with me back to Capernaum, 18 miles. I want you to come back with me, and I want you to heal my son. As a high-ranking official, he was accustomed to giving these kind of directives, these kind of orders. He told subordinates what to do and how to do it. He was, was he doing the same thing to Jesus? Was his belief in Christ contingent upon the willingness of Christ to answer his prayer the way he wanted him to? Uh, I just feel a little bit of a barrier here right now. Pastor, I'm good with what you're saying until right now. Go back to the healing of Naaman. The people around him said, if the prophet had asked you to do some strange thing, would you have done it? Why don't you go kneel, get down in the Jordan River and dip seven times? Is it going to hurt you to do that? There's people here today that God could open a floodgate of amazing things in your life if you would just take Jesus at face value. Just take the Bible at face value. Well, I've got all this stuff in my head. Well, get rid of all the stuff in your head. I know that's easier said than done, but this is a long journey. And I'm sure had Jesus chosen to go back with him that 18 miles, that Jesus probably would have straightened him out a little bit on some stuff. But he didn't have to. And I applaud the nobleman for that because he didn't have to. Jesus didn't have to go through all this stuff. So Jesus saw this contingent of faith. This, this has got to be done my way. So for whatever reason, Jesus felt a warning was in order. In his first miracle, Jesus rewarded the unconditional whatever faith of Mary. But in this miracle, he cautioned against the conditional faith that people are building up in their mind. Come on, Jesus, perform for us. Or if you'll do it the way I want you to do, I'll believe it. He's doing away with that now. That wasn't present when he turned the water to wine, but it is now. He's teaching now how to properly approach him. He gave his mother a lot of latitude, but now not the nobleman. The father did of this child did not reply to that caution. His heart was a dozen exits down the highway. He did not dispute the fact that some people demanded miracles. He just simply wanted him and Jesus to stay focused on the task, on the task at hand. And so the father pleads with Jesus, please come now before my little boy dies. I want you to notice his appeal could hardly be more genuine. His direction could hardly be, have been more clear. Come now, he said. And Jesus responded to it this way. Sir, I know that you've traveled a long ways to get to me. I also know that you're here very sincere and your heart is full of faith. I also know that your son is dying. I know all of that. But I'm not going back with you. 
I don't know how you and I would have responded to that. I, I have a feeling <laughs> me and Jesus would have to have a little more conversation. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an offering. I'll, I'll increase my campground pledge. Uh, I promise to serve you for the rest of my life, oh God, if you'll just do this one thing for me. I'm sure the man was prepared to make whatever assurances and requirements that Jesus may have required. But Jesus only gave him one stipulation. When you leave here, you are going without me. At least in my physical form. I want you to understand that. It was a test. It was a trial. It was Jesus testing the man. Let me ask you today. You've got the picture. I'm, I feel like all of you do. You've got the picture. Was this good news for this man? You go back home now and your son shall live. Was that good news? Or was it? But Jesus, you're not coming? No. Well, how's my son going to live? You just have to trust me. You have to believe. Is that good news or bad news? I really need you to be with me, but I'm not coming. I think it's a legitimate question. We would say that Jesus answered his prayer, but did he? My idea of an answered prayer, Jesus, is you coming home with me. That's my idea of an answered prayer. But Jesus' idea of an answered prayer is I'll take care of your son if you'll believe it, and you just go on now. Everything's going to be okay. I don't want to belabor the point, but I am giving you and I an example of pretty much our same posture, that when God, and I've learned this all of my life, and I still struggle with a lesson, if God doesn't do it our way, then forget about it. And that's not how God works. He does it his way in his time. The nobleman maybe had reason to rejoice. Jesus said, go home and your son shall live. Ooh, hallelujah. Oh, oh, wait a minute. You're not coming? He had a reason to rejoice, but he also had a reason to be disappointed. Has anybody else in this building ever been there? Pastor, God made me a promise. Has he fulfilled it? No. Well, do you rejoice or no? Do you wait till he makes a promise or do you wait till it's fulfilled before you rejoice? What do you do when you're this man? You think about it. The man asked Jesus to go with him to Capernaum, but Jesus told him to go back home and your son will live. This was a moment of truth for this father. The moment he set out on the longest walk of his life, the prayer he prayed was in Cana. But would it be answered in Capernaum? That he did not know. So now he has a choice to make. Perhaps a nobleman turned on a dime and floated home on the magic carpet of faith. Maybe he high-fived his way down the path shouting, My dying son shall live. 
And perhaps he slept like a baby that night and woke with joy the next morning. The sun was shining, the sky was blue, and he skipped and whistled all the way back home to Capernaum. If so, he's a better man than I am. I would have swallowed really hard at Jesus' reply. I would have looked at first at Jesus, then at the road, first one way, then the next. What if he arrived at Capernaum and his son wasn't better? What if the Messiah had moved to, on to another city before the father could ever find him again? But he made his choice. The man took Jesus in his word and departed. He believed in the spoken word of Jesus. John 4, and as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, The son liveth. And he himself believed in his whole house. The good news from the servants was met with a good question from the father. You say my son lives. What time did he start getting better? The reply was at one o'clock in the afternoon. The very time that Jesus had spoken the word. Before the man could take his first step. Before the man could really manifest belief. The boy was healed. Jesus had worked a long distance miracle of healing. The miracle was not just in the life of the boy. But in the saving faith of the entire household. I want to speak to Mike and Sheila Landry right now. You have a son that's a long ways away. And we all know that he's not in a good place in a lot of ways. But that does not limit what Jesus can do as long as... doesn't limit what Jesus can do as long as the household stays unified. This man not only believed, but his household did. Y'all understand that unity is a powerful, powerful tool. There's people here today I could call by name going up one side and down the other that has problems and difficulties and challenges in your own life. If you could get your household unified, it helped this man's miracle come to pass. Isn't that what Jesus desired all along as much or more than healing the young lad? He was rejoicing over the unification of faith in that man's house. His wife got on board. His other kids got on board. The community got on board. It's what Jesus desired. I want you to understand the boy eventually died. At some point in his life, he died later. Jesus didn't save him the second time. I've never met anybody from Galilee that's some 2,000 years old, and it's this kid. He died. Jesus' point in this life-given miracle was a short-term miracle. But the faith that was required and the faith that came as a result of this miracle unified that house. And it was an eternal value to Jesus. To the man, it was the healing of his son. To Jesus, it was a saving of his family. So, so I ask you today, what about you? Do you find yourself, and I know there's people here today right now, 
that finds yourself somewhere between Cana and Capernaum. You've been to Jesus, but now you have to return back home. And the saving of your household will depend on your posture, your perception. If you really embrace what Jesus said, you've offered a heartfelt prayer like this man did. You begged Jesus for help. And like the official, you didn't want to receive the answer, but you did it. So consequently, here you are doing your best now to put one foot in front of the other headed back home. You've got your answer, but to you, you still don't have Jesus. See, it's where these Bible stories get compelling to me. It's where they get, they take a real deep dive. Addie, if you don't mind, we think of your family, specifically your mother, often. How many times have you made that trek to Jesus with that request? In preparation of this sermon, this presentation today, you were at the forefront of my mind. And how many times has this family, not only is it your mother, but it's your grandfather's daughter. There's a two-ended approach here. One coming to Jesus, that's my mother. The other coming to Jesus is that's my daughter. And so Jesus is getting hammered from, from both directions, if you will. And you, you, you know somehow that, and we've had similar conversation, that my mom is in the hands of Jesus, all of that, all of that, all of that. And you walk away full of assurance. And I prayed and I felt God heard my prayer. I knew God heard my prayer. I know God heard my prayer. And so you walk away and then you experience that trying, heartfelt moment. And you look around and say, Jesus, where are you? I thought you answered my prayer. I thought you heard me when I prayed, but I don't see any evidence of you at all. It's one thing to leave Capernaum and go to Jesus. It's another one to leave Cain of Galilee and go back to Capernaum seemingly without him. I'm trying to help somebody here. This is the issue of not yet answered prayer. Or it's the issue of not yet answered prayer in the way I wanted it done. We want plan A, but Jesus responds with plan B. So how do we react? How do you find the strength to do in your life what Bill Irwin did in that trek on the Appalachian Trail? Do we walk by faith when we are thus far blind to the solution? Let me approach the answer to this gently. Before I suggest an answer, may I tell you that I'm sorry we have to discuss this question. I'm sorry that you have a yet-to-be-answered prayer request. I'm sorry the job you applied for didn't materialize, and I'm sorry your spouse did not apologize, and I'm certainly sorry the cancer chose to mesticize and that list goes on and on. And I'm sorry you found yourself between Cana leaving Jesus headed back to Capernaum. Uh, I'm sorry you find yourself in that place right now. Life has its share of dark, dank moments 
And Jesus will not remove all the pain this side of heaven. The trip from Cana back to Capernaum, David said it this way. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I've been to the shepherd. Brother Jason preached on that several months ago, several weeks ago, a couple of months ago. I've been to the shepherd. Now I'm walking a path in relationship with him. And it's dark and it's trying and it's scary. I'm very sorry for the people that's on that long walk from that red hot fervent prayer meeting and that red hot fervent altar service and that red hot fervent service at camp meeting and that song that ministered to you and you're not in that place anymore. You have a promise but it seems like you don't have Jesus. anybody ever assure you that God permits only blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams? Did God ever promise there'd ever be any trouble or problems in life? If people ever told you that serving God's a piece of cake, they misspoke. If you read the Bible from the table of contents in the front to the maps in the back, you will not find any promise of a pain-free life on this side of death. But what you will find The writer of Hebrews said it clearly in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conversation or your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. See, the problem with the nobleman, the problem with the nobleman, as he thought, Jesus being with him could only be accomplished in Jesus and his human body. Y'all don't, don't buckle your seatbelt now. Don't get too quiet on me. The man did not think of the possibility of Jesus stepping outside of that body and being an invisible presence. And you and I are programmed, we've been programmed to think, that anything and everything that happens between us and God has to happen at church. In the body. But we forget sometimes that God has the ability to step outside the body. So even when you're not here, you're there somewhere between you and your answered prayer request is an invisible presence that has never left Never forsaken. Sister Landry? According to Brother Holloway a couple of Sundays ago, God knew when Justin was born what was ahead of him. He didn't go contrary to his will, to Justin's will. He Life plays out. And so we see the bad thing. Addie, we see mom in such a challenging physical situation. And oftentimes that's where we stop. This is where they are, God. This is where they are, God. This is where they are, God. God doesn't stop with where they are. 
God stopped at where all this finishes. And in his mind, when he told the nobleman, you go home because your son lives, Jesus wasn't really that interested in the raising of the man's son for Jesus' sake. He did it for the man. Jesus' motive was let me use something here. It's going to cause that entire family to believe in me. And that is the point. So, how do you interpret that miracle? Stand with me today. I'm trying to finish. How do you interpret the success of that miracle? You, do you interpret the success of that miracle, that miracle the way the nobleman interpreted it? Did my son lives? Or do you interpret it, the success of that miracle the way Jesus would, that that whole family believed in me and I saved them? Now, which is the most important? just mentioned to you that later on at some point in life that boy died we know that but where is that family now y'all feel me here this morning so when you look at an answered prayer or not is it a successful answer to prayer when it's answered to benefit you or is it a success when it benefits Jesus I'm happy to say that God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in the time of trouble. I'm very happy to say that God was compassionate and merciful to that man. When that prayer was answered and the man rejoiced and high-fived and skipped down the street all the way back to Capernaum where he lived and embraced his son and kissed his wife and said, Isn't Jesus beautiful? Jesus was still in Cana. Maybe he was jumping up and down and high-fiving and said, I've got a whole entire family on board with me, and I did this miracle so it would happen, and it did. All right. So where it's getting real tricky. You interpret the success of a miracle because gave you, God gave you what you wanted, or is the success of a miracle because God got what he wanted? This is hard, man. This is hard. Because we understand that Jesus didn't answer everybody's prayer like that. There's a lot of people Jesus, people wanted Jesus to heal their, their loved ones, and he didn't. I mean, he let Lazarus die. He resurrected him, but he let that family go through. And it all ended up a thing about, you remember the conversation between Jesus and Mary and Martha? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection? Do you believe that your, your, your brother will live? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe, 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 believe? His point is to make a believer out of us. Our point is to have God give us what we want. See, faith is not necessarily a byproduct of you getting what you want. But faith is a byproduct of giving God what He wants. And so how many people have said, God did not answer my prayer. Yeah, he did. He just didn't get, God didn't get out of it what he wanted. And neither did you. Because you didn't accept it God's way. 
I feel the presence of the Lord here today. And I believe God would speak to somebody right now if you would open your heart to him and let him let him talk to you. I think sometimes we have grossly misinterpreted the miracle. Daddy, what would happen to you and your family if God completely healed your mom? She may be watching today. Y'all would be smiling, high-fiving, running up and down the hospital. I remember when my mother came out of a coma when the doctor said she wouldn't live another 24 hours. She woke up the next morning and said, where's my family? One of my brothers started running up and down the hospital hall screaming, my mother's awake, my mother's awake, my mother's awake. I've been there what that's like. What would you do if God healed her? But what will you do if God doesn't? It's that long road. You understand me? It's a long road there to Jesus, but it's a long road back to just normal life again and to coming home and it just you just grind the thing out and don't seem like my family's getting any better, my, my loved one's not getting any better. And God, what do I do? What do I do? Is God trying to perform a miracle for your sake or his? Every miracle that God performs, he should get the glory for it. He should. He should get the glory for it. If he doesn't, then the miracle was a fail. And the blind man, I'm trying to close. In the story of the blind man who was born blind, the disciples said, who did sin, this man or his parents? Jesus said neither, but that the glory of God might be manifested. That's the point. That's the point. So I say, you pray to Jesus, you present your need, and you leave it with him. And say, and I say this to people often, I've said it to Addie, I don't mean to call you names so much. Pray that the will of God not my will. I know it's not what we want to hear, but it's the truth. The success of a miracle is what God ultimately gets out of it in eternal ways, the eternal things. So this morning... I want to have an altar service, but I feel like I've taught more of a Bible study here today than preached anything. It's almost like I could dismiss you right now and you've heard the Bible study. But I know today in my heart there's people here. You've been to Jesus with your prayer request. Now you're in that long journey back. Mike and Sheila, y'all are in that long journey back. All the health issues you may be experiencing, all the trials, the financial issues, whatever. I want you to come today while they begin to sing and play softly. I'd like for everybody to come. Everybody come on up to the front for a few minutes. And I'd just like to give you an opportunity to just grab a hold of Jesus and get a firm grip on his hand and say, God, no matter what happens when I get home, no matter what happens when I get back to life, no matter what happens tomorrow morning, no matter what happens next week, my hand is still in your hand. And you're still an amazing God, and I'm still going to serve you no matter what. Y'all sing. Let's open our heart to the Lord. Everybody come and talk to the Lord for a few.